0: So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 eventually. I told you last time that Daniel has a chiastic structure, and the sort of overall view of it is there's a division there in the middle, line that goes over to the left, and above that line is Chaldean, and below that line is Hebrew. I'm just showing the overall structure right now. The stuff that's in yellow or buff is in Chaldean, and the stuff that's in blue is in Hebrew. So the first... Half of the book or so is in Chaldean, and the second half then is in Hebrew. And then at the beginning, you've got a historical prologue in Hebrew, and then at the end, you've got a prophetic epilogue also in Hebrew. So now I'm going to zoom in. This is the top half of that diagram, which now you should be able to read. What you have in chapter 2 is kingdom prophecies. You have the four metal images, so forth, and that's matched by chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision, and he sees wild beasts. The standard explanation of that is in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is seeing the empires of the world from a human perspective, and what he sees is useful metals, you know, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. What God sees is wild beasts. So Daniel gets his vision in chapter 7 and he's seeing actually the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing except instead of seeing a big statue that's all glorious and and exciting and majestic, he sees a bunch of wild beasts. So then coming in on the chiasm in chapter 3 you've got the fiery furnace. This particular labeling of the chiasm is uh, trials of God's people and that will be balanced in chapter 6 by Daniel in the lion's den, which is a trial of God's people. So you have that balanced. And then in the middle, what we have is chapter 4, which is what we're going to do tonight. And if we go quickly, we may get into chapter 5. And what you have then is God dealing with the kings of Babylon, both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Other versions of these chiasms I've seen as God's mastery over kingdoms, but the structure is the same. So then we have the second half of the book, which is all in Hebrew. And again, you have kingdom prophecies. And what we're going to do now is you're going to see, depending on how you look at the prophecy of the toes in the clay, i happen to think that that's in time stuff the idea of iron and clay mixed together and of course he says they don't actually mix and in fact my translation says that iron and clay don't marry yours said that they don't breed either one is, is fine but there's two different words used for clay in that sequence when Daniel is explaining the thing to Nebuchadnezzar, he uses a Chaldean word for clay. When he is explaining what God says it means, he uses the same word for clay, it's translated clay, as is used in Genesis when it says God took the dust of the earth and breathed, it's the same word. Now whether that's a word that got borrowed from Hebrew by Aramaic or whether it's a word that was originally Aramaic and was borrowed by Hebrew. I mean, all, any of those things are possible. So what I take from that is the reason for the flood was you had inappropriate mixtures being made. You had the the Elohim that were going into the daughters of men, and it appears that the result of that breeding was not pleasing to God. In the book of Jude, what Jude says is that those... Angels that did not keep their place, but in fact bred with human women are now chained in darkness in the center of the earth. So there was some hanky-panky going on that wound up with something that God didn't approve of. And so where you have an unnatural mixture appears to be happening again in the Ten Toes, which is why I think it's an end-time prophecy. So anyway, that's the chiastic structure. And when we get into the second half, I'll probably bring this back and talk about the blue half. But for the next couple of chapters, we're going to be in the buff half. We're now in Daniel chapter 4. So we've just got done with the fiery furnace. So now chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Chapter 4 is essentially Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's written in Aramaic. It glorifies and exalts God. I am a pretty firm believer that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in the world to come and you're going to be able to go talk to him because from all indications here, this guy has got a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I don't know that he would say the name of Jesus with a proper Texas accent, but he's got everything else. God reaches out and grabs him by the stacking swivel and gets his attention, and Nebuchadnezzar pays attention. That's pretty much what God asks for. So now down to verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So this is a sort of a replay of what happened back in Daniel chapter 2. He's got a dream. It woke him up. It disturbs him. He's getting his staff, spiritual advisors, to come in and tell him what's going on. Verse 7. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Having caused all the disruption that he caused the first time he did this, I don't know whether he has learned or he is feeling more mellow toward his advisors or what. But he actually gives them a dream up front as opposed to saying you've got to, figure out what the dream is, and then tell me what it means. But that doesn't do them any good because they are not up to the task. Verse 8, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy God, and I told him the dream. Back up a second before we go into the dream itself. Interesting, interesting, interesting here. At last, Daniel came in to see me. So he is referring to Daniel as Daniel. And then he says, parenthetically, and genealogy here, this jerk eunuch gave him the name of my God, and that's the official name he goes by in the court. But as far as I'm concerned, he's Daniel. So the relationship here has changed between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Still got the official title that he got given when he brought into the court, and all identifying by that, but this is Daniel, verse nine. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, let me tell the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these: I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong; its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. So that's the first half of the vision. So this image of, I am a tree to this empire. People come under my shade, and my fruit feeds them. It's all very much me-centric. So the metaphor here is that the dream he's getting is very egocentric. Not only do I reach up to heaven, but I provide shade and protection to all of the peoples in the earth, and the birds and the animals eat of my fruit. The dream that he has been given here is a dream about his pride. The first part of this dream, then, is him in his full power and the arrogance of being the emperor of the most powerful empire in the biblical world. So now down to verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. There's the vision. The first half is pride, power, hubris, arrogance, whatever you want to call it, the second part of it that's all leveled out flat and bound. So I am a sort of two minds. You remember again, we went over this a couple weeks ago when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, there were three perspectives one could take on the symbols there. And it was the same by the way in Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. We talked about that. Here It's a whole lot more stark, and I believe that since there was no threat of death on offer to the original group of staff members that came in and could not interpret the dream, I'm not sure they didn't understand the dream. They were just terrified to interpret it. It doesn't say. We don't know, but given the interpretation that Daniel gives here, I can see that Somebody on the staff would not want to come up with this interpretation. When you read the historical books in the Bible, Kings and, and Chronicles and so forth, one of the things that you discover is if a king doesn't like what a prophet says, the king has no problem grabbing the prophet and having him roughed up. I don't like your prophecy, old oh prophet, and they'll throw him in jail, have him beaten, have him killed, whatever. So being a prophet in that kind of an atmosphere is probably a really tough duty. I don't know what the culture here is in Babylon. Just don't know. But given the way Hebrew prophets were treated by Hebrew kings, it would not at all surprise me if the wise men heard this dream and said, Son of a gun, boss. No idea. Can't. I couldn't tell you. got no idea what this is about, boss. As I say, that's just human nature. So now down to verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Notice that Daniel is hesitant to offer an interpretation. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. I infer from this a couple of things. Thing one is, obviously, Daniel knows what the dream means, and he really doesn't want to give the king bad news. I also infer from this that his relationship, interpersonal relationship with the king, is actually pretty solid and pretty good. Nebuchadnezzar trusts him, and Daniel reciprocates that trust, and I think they have a really good working relationship. First time I went through Daniel, years and years ago, must have been 20 years ago now, I went through it with Chuck Misler. Chuck's a good Bible scholar. I enjoy his stuff. And one of the things that he said is the way Daniel writes about Nebuchadnezzar, he is sort of of the opinion that during the time when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind, that Daniel ran the kingdom for him and took care of him. Because A, Daniel knew that he was going to be back after some time, but Daniel was was loyal to him made sure that when his mind wasn't with him, that somebody didn't come out and spear him or something while he couldn't defend himself, and then kept the kingdom running. All the machinery of empire during the time when he was out of commission. Seven periods of time, unspecified period, the typical interpretation is seven years. But it could be seven months. Don't know. It's just seven times is what it says. Verse 19 and a half. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord. May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Which is to say, I got some bad news here, boss. You're not going to like this. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots on the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. He's saying, since there's a stump left, you are going to recover, but you're only going to recover when you have humbled yourself before God and acknowledge that heaven rules. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Again, this is very much like what Joseph did. Joseph comes in, he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and then turns around and says, and this is what you need to do about it, O king, which is quite bold, because typically people in that line of work do not take unsolicited advice well. Again, what that tells me is that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's relationship is a good relationship and it is as warm a relationship as can exist between a king and a commoner because Daniel is genuinely trying to help. And what he's saying is, parenthetically, O king, if you continue to act in an arrogant manner this is what's going to happen if you moderate your behavior and you become righteous and you start doing charity and so forth there is a chance that this may not come to pass which is by the way O king, shape up is what's being said very diplomatically there so now we're down to verse 28 all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months I am assuming it's 12 months from the time that the dream was interpreted. He took Daniel's advice, and he is doing his best, and he has managed to keep himself in check for a year. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Me, me, me. Look at this glorious city that I have built by my power, and the reason I built it was for my glory. That's literally what he's saying. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Another way to read that, instead of you only get out of your sentence once you recognize, is your sentence is seven years or seven periods of time because that is how long I know it is going to take to get your attention. Verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And if that second interpretation of this is correct, at the end of his sentence, when he's restored, he is restored and has a firm understanding of who God is and the fact that he's not. There is a God, Nebuchadnezzar ain't him, and Nebuchadnezzar now has that concept firmly grasped. So let's pick it up at 34 again now and read his entire testimony. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? One of the things that is a standard greeting in the scripture is, O king, live forever. In this case, it's true. But you see that in other places, and it isn't necessarily what it means. In other words, forever doesn't always mean forever in the Bible. It depends on how it's used. And again, he is sovereign. And we've all had the discussion of what sovereign means, right? Sovereign doesn't mean that he gets to do whatever he wants to do. Sovereign means that nobody makes rules for him. He gets to make his own rules. Now, the thing we depend on is that he will, in fact, follow those rules that he himself has made. I mean, if he doesn't, there's nothing we can do about it There's a practical matter. But one of the things that he assures us over and over again is that he is faithful to the rules that he himself has made. But he is also sovereign, which is to say he's the one that made them. They were not imposed on him by somebody else. And in comparison with him, the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing, ants beneath your feet. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, he is not only sovereign on the earth, he is sovereign in heaven. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, this is sort of the essence of the book of Job. When God does something, there is no court that you can take him before and say, I have been done wrong. That's what this no one can say, what have you done, means. It means that there is no other authority that you can go to and say, he treated me unfairly, I want you to judge between us. And one of the things that Job says over and over and over again is, oh, that there was some court that I could go to, because I am really being treated unjustly here. But what Job says is, oh, that there were some court that I could go to, not I'm taking you into court, because Job fully realizes that there is no such court. With the exception of the mention of Yeshua, This is a perfect confession of faith. Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Now notice what that says. At that time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. In other words, I've got all the majesty and splendor I had before, but now I realize it isn't for me. It's because my kingdom needs a glorious king that I have been made glorious, not because I'm a hotshot. To use an example, Ronald Reagan always wore a coat and tie when he went into the Oval Office because he realized that he was simply the most current occupant of that and that the office was greater than he was. And so he always treated the office with the utmost respect and always dressed up when he went into the office. And it's the same thing Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. Yeah, I got all these royal robes and I get dressed up and I really look great, but it's not for me. It's because the kingdom needs a symbol of its greatness. As I say, this is a remarkable testimony. It really is. So my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Nebuchadnezzar is under no misunderstanding about why he got taken down for seven seasons. He has laid it out very clearly in his testimony. He says, I was standing there and I was saying, I built this great city as a monument to me, and that's the point at which I went down. And now that I'm back, I am very clear that none of this is a monument to me. It's all a monument to God. It's a great passage of Scripture. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor.
1: Thank you.